This is the uh, first Sunday of the month of September, so I trust some of you will have turned your page on the calendar and read the new Dhammapada verse for this month, which is verse number 24 from the Dhammapada, which says that those who are energetically committed to the way, who are pure and considerate and effort, who are composed and virtuous in conduct, steadily increase in radiance. So this, this verse comes from the, uh, the Vaga or the, the section of the Dhammapada very early on. It's called the Apamada Vaga, the, uh, the section on heedfulness. It's a, um, this was a verse that the Buddha gave specifically in the context of teaching to lay people. A lot of the Dhammapada verses were uh, given to monks. Uh, those of you that have read the stories about it uh, behind these verses will have picked that up already. But this particular verse was uh, given specifically to lay people. But the principles, all of these verses, the principles apply to all of us. For those who have gone forth to live the renunciate life, or those who are living the householder's life, uh, the principles of Dhamma apply equally. What changes is, is perhaps the, the uh, intensity or, or the approach that we have to some of these principles, but the principles still all apply universally. So when I read this verse, when I read this verse the other day, I picked it up off the wall and said, oh, it's my talk coming up. I better memorise the verse. And uh, the word that stood out for me was this word, the last word, actually, radiance. Uh, steadily increase in radiance. Those who are energetically committed to the way, who are pure and considerate in effort, composed and virtuous in conduct, steadily increase in radiance. And this word radiance really jumped off the page for me. And, well, that's interesting. And what I immediately started thinking about, well, what, what makes you radiant? And there are some radiant people that I've lived with, like my first teacher in Thailand, Vinamajan Tate, was a, a truly radiant being. Although actually, physically, he was very ill. He had leukemia uh, for many years. I think for uh, maybe 20 or more years he was suffering with leukemia. And uh, from what I heard, the doctors had told him he wasn't going to live very long at all. That was in the hospital, but he came back from the hospital and decided to, well, whatever he decided, he, he came back to the monastery and then um, my understanding is he, he used his meditation skills to go in and tweak a few things so that he could um, he didn't die in the age of 70. In fact, he died well into, into, into his 90s. But when I was living with him, he was already quite old and quite ill, but truly radiant, beautifully radiant. It is one of those people that you, when you meet, you just want to look at them. And, and he, there was a softness to him. 
but it's also incredible strength. Some of you will have heard me talk about my time there with him before, and we, we used to go down after evening chanting regularly every night, and there'd be about eight of us, or maybe even more, on him, massaging him with our elbows, digging in, Thai style, really, really digging in and with your thumbs. He just lay there, just totally, <laughs> for about, I don't know, about an hour, half an hour, an hour. And uh, there's tremendous strength there, and you would never, you know, you'd never try and pull one over him. I mean, he was really, really strong and absolutely centered. And, and there was a strength of unshakability about him, but also this remarkable softness and gentleness. You, you couldn't, you know, looking at him, I remember thinking, you can't even tell if he's a man or a woman. There was a softness and a strength and a tremendous beauty and, and, and exquisite radiance about him. And certainly he's somebody who you could say was um, pure and considerate in effort and uh, composed and virtuous in conduct. But, uh, and radiant. And, and his behavior was always, he was always, there was always a sense of kindliness to him. You know, the Buddha talking about how a bhikkhu is supposed to behave and when approached, even in unpleasant ways, even even if you think people are taking advantage of you or whatever, a monk is supposed to train himself to to always be composed and restrained and 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 with Ajahn Tate, you could tell it was just, you could never, there wasn't reactivity. Yeah, there's this exquisite vitality, even though physically he was ill, there's this tremendous vitality and radiance about him. But also I got to think about, well, you know, you can get some pretty radiant fundamentalists as well. I mean, I, I've met some some radiant people who I think are really potty. You know, really potty, you know, really. I mean, some of the stuff they come out with about Archangel Gabriel or whatever, I mean, with the greatest respect to those who believe in Archangel Gabriel, but the, <laughs> some of the, the stories that people will uh, ask you to believe, um, you know, extraterrestrial beings, and, and they're really radiant, these people. Bright eyes, you know, like shining at you. and The skin is beautiful and... They're a lot better looking than me, and <laughs> skin's a lot better than mine, and <laughs> full of energy, tremendously. Don't sleep very much. You say, well, steadily increase in radiance. Well, I mean, what is the radiance that the Buddha was talking about? So there's radiance and there's radiance, and that, so that's, that's where my contemplation on this verse got triggered. And as, as I've said before, with contemplating these verses, I. You can approach it in a scholarly way and, and translate each word. And, of course, I did go through that when I did my translations of, the, of this, this particular text but, or my rendering of this particular text. But I think in, in, in these verses it's also perfectly valid just to, when you read the verse, just say what, what gets activated for you. you know, where does this connect? And, and start there. And so contemplating radiance and the differences... What I always started thinking about was how you, you, there, are, there is a way of getting radiant and energetic and bright and energized that actually comes from not what the Buddha was talking about. Well, the Buddha is talking about letting go from attachments. But you can also get radiant from clinging. You can get radiant, you get tremendous energy. Fundamentalism is a form of clinging where a, there can be a lot of radiance, a lot of power. Political fundamentalists can be very charismatic, not just religious fundamentalists, environmental fundamentalists, ecological fundamentalists. Fundamentalism is a condition of the mind where the, the consciousness seems to contract or constrict down to a few possibilities, 
fundamentalists can't tolerate ambiguity or, or diversity or complexity. They're rather simplistic approach to life, very and very firmly held. And in fact, I would say that in, within my own family, I'm very familiar with fundamentalist belief systems and 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 with people who are very radiant and positive and full of energy. But it's not something that uh, accords with how I understand what the Buddha was talking about or my own experience in practice. The path of practice that that I have confidence in, the path that was exemplified by Ajahn Tate, by Ajahn Chah and all the great teachers uh, since the Buddha, is the path of not finding radiance or energy or well-being or, or uh, strength in grasping, but actually in letting go. And even in, in letting go of beliefs. You can grasp at beliefs and become radiant. And we can grasp at an idea and become full of enthusiasm. Yeah. There's constriction that we put on our hearts by, by clinging to a belief and a view. And a, there's this force of conviction comes up which can be tremendously energizing. But that's not what the Buddha was in, encouraging. Rather, he was encouraging, actually, he was encouraging disbelief. And if we talk about belief and disbelief, well, maybe it's more accurate to say he was encouraging non-believing rather than encouraging disbelief. It depends how we appreciate these words. And I think it's a a useful, a skillful way of crafting our practice along the lines of disbelief, along the lines of letting go of beliefs. And if we can... If we get a feeling for how this brings openness of heart and and freedom and energy and aliveness and possibly radiance, if we get a feeling for this, well, then we can bring it into all aspects of our lives. So it's important that we we see how this works in meditation, that when we're sitting there and doing what the teacher says of focusing on the meditation object, and say the sensation of the body breathing, And the discipline is to stay with this, to come back to this. Establish the whole body in a sense of ease and presence. Establish the mind in an awareness of of this moment, not getting lost in the past or the future. Be present without taking sides for or against, right or wrong. Here we've established ourselves in this moment. And then engaging the discipline of staying with the sensation of body breathing. And we do it for a while. And then what happens is something arises in consciousness. I want to think about that movie I wanted to see. Or, oh, yeah, yeah. What are we going to do? We've got a choice at that point. We want to watch that movie or we're going to think about watching that movie or renting that movie or buying that movie or going to the movie. Yeah. Or are we going to come back to the breath? We've got a choice at that point. Now that's the point where we exercise restraint. And if we understand, if we do this with mindfulness... If we exercise restraint at this point with mindfulness, what we're doing is we're we're equipping the heart with this capacity to just to abide in openness and uncertainty. We don't have to be certain about life. We don't have to be certain about what's the right or wrong thing to do. We don't have to be certain about the future. The fundamentalist or the clingy mind wants to be sure wants to know straight away. 
like you get a you get a letter from the doctor that that says you've got to come in for an appointment. You maybe you had some tests done, and then you get uh, a report from the doctor that says you've got to come in for an appointment. He's like, well, what does this mean? So I don't know. The truth is, I don't know what it means. And then you start thinking, oh my god, I had those tests, and maybe I've got this cancer or that cancer or this is going wrong. The truth is, we don't know. But what happens is we go into worry, into fear and anxiety. How do we pull out of that? How do we not believe in the conditions that arise in our mind, like worry, like anxiety, like desire, like ill will? And these conditions that disturb our meditation, these conditions that actually spoil our lives, how do we, how do we not become them? Oh, this is this is this is where formal practice and meditation is so important. That we, yes, in daily life we exercise restraint, but in formal practice, we, the exercise is to watch the breath, and then the temptation is to follow the condition. But we choose not to do that, and we choose for this reason. We understand why we're doing. It. We're not just doing it because the teacher said to do it, or because we're trying to develop some special state of mind. You can follow that path of practice if you want. But I'm not sure where it'll take you. But if we actually because we're interested in the reality and in freedom, that when these conditions arise in our mind, we actually don't believe them. It feels so tempting to follow this desire to think about how I can get that movie to watch or how I can, how I can get my own back against that rat bag who, who really took advantage of me. I mean, really. Yeah. It feels so tempting. Or, or, or fear, worry. You know, when I said that, and you know, I wonder if they misunderstood me. I wonder if they thought that I was saying this. <laughs> well, again, to exercise discernment, to exercise mindfulness, and appreciate that that we don't, we're not obliged to believe in this stuff. We're not obliged to believe in this stuff when we when we when our minds are conditioned by by sensual desire, by gratification through through grasping at sensuality, and then that's what we do. We grasp, we, a sensual desire comes up and we grasp at it and we really believe that it's going to give us what we want and then either we get what we want, we feel happy and feel pleased with ourselves or we don't get what we want, we feel disappointed and then we try to forget about it. You know, we don't stop there and study it and say, well, actually, by believing in desire, it got me into a lot of trouble. Usually we don't do that. Usually if we're disappointed, if our desires are frustrated, we just say, well, I'll try and get a better desire and try harder to gratify it next time. Or whatever we go and distract ourselves. Yeah. Now the wise thing to do would be that when desire arises, you know, first we come back to the breath. If it's too strong a desire and, and we, that doesn't work, we go to actually look at the desire. What's going, what is this desire? What is the reality of this desire? This desire is telling me I've got to grasp at it, believe in it and follow it. And I, but does that really produce well-being? What happens? I grasp. You get all hot. You start getting all agitated and restless. And does it make you peaceful? It doesn't make me peaceful. Until eventually, with the right kind of mindfulness and the right kind of restraint, we see through it and say, "It's a, it's a con. It's a con." And I do not believe it. Not because we've grasped at disbelief. That's something else. You know, we grasp at disbelief. That's not it. That's just the same as grasping at belief. But by investigating the way we're fooled by desire, for instance, and looking at it and choosing to restrain the mind from following it. And then, and then when we're ready, 
very carefully when we're ready, not because we can't help but desire, but follow it, but when we're ready, say, no, I'm ready now to investigate. Yeah, why not? Why not take a good close look at this desire? Yeah. Still in our body, still feeling the breath, still aware of the whole body mind, not getting pulled into right and wrong, should or shouldn't. So it's judgment free here and now, whole body mind awareness. Yeah. We turn away from the breath and choose to investigate the desire until. Now, this can take a long time, but if we get a feeling for this, well, then we, we realize we don't have to believe to get energy. We don't have to believe to feel good. In fact, choosing to not believe, not believe in desire, not believe in the movements of mind, not believe in, in apparent reality, not believe in ill will. Yeah, it's just so convincing. It's the story that ill will tells us that you're really going to feel better when you make this person suffer. Absolutely, you will feel better. Well, once we've seen through the con, I don't believe it. Yeah, it feels that way, absolutely feels that way. It definitely does feel that way. Absolutely, definitely, yeah, it does feel that way. Yeah, I definitely do want to see that movie, but I do not believe in that desire to... I do not believe in the wish to hurt somebody. Not because you're forcing yourself to not believe in it. In the beginning, like you hear a talk like this and you can think, oh, well, I'm going to choose to not believe in anything. Well, that's just again, grasping at disbelief. But if we exercise the possibility we have by in our meditation, when these conditions arise, when we're ready, when we're ready, that's very important, not trying too hard, when we're ready, we can bring attention to the condition and say, is this true? Is this really the way it looks? until one day we see through it. And, uh, and that's, that's, that's very important. That's, that's really important. And it's not necessarily going to happen quickly. We can be so in such a hurry to do these things. Even you hear the Buddha's teachings or you hear, uh, you read about the teachings and you think, oh, I'd like to do that and I'd like to be able to do that. And perhaps you can intellectually understand it and even intuitively feel for it. But that doesn't mean to say that it's going to happen immediately. We've got to over and over again in our meditation, over and over again, willingly come back, willingly come back, willingly restrain from following the fantasies. It feels so creative to follow our fantasies in meditation. But when we can't choose to not follow them, then they're not really creative, they're compulsive. Compulsive proliferation is very different from creative engagement. Very different. When we're feeling driven then that's compulsive proliferation. And, and so, and it's very shallow, we'll never get very far. I mean, a lot of the world is like that. It's not like there's not, that won't do things. You can get a lot of things done by being totally caught up in, 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 in compulsive proliferation. You can be very productive, get paid a lot of money, go mad as well, and drive around the bend. Yeah. But it won't actually get anywhere very deep. Whereas if we out of in, in interest, choose to investigate, even including that, the, the tendency to become compulsive about things. With mindfulness, we notice it. Oh, compulsively thinking about such and such. Maybe you've discovered a new language you want to learn. You've discovered you're going to learn a new, a new language. Maybe you, yeah, Russian literature, what's a rich resource of inspiration all the translations are, yeah, they're probably good enough, but 
wow, if I could learn Russian, and so you decide you're going to learn Russian, or, or Sanskrit. I've got a friend who's learning Sanskrit, and he's, he's bonkers about Sanskrit poetry. Well, he's calmed down a little bit now, but in the beginning he got, got, got a little bit obsessed with, with Sanskrit poetry. All these great teachings that we've read about and heard in, in translation, you get access to them you know, in, in the real, in the original condition, and, and you can get obsessed with it. And, and then in your meditation, you're sitting there, and this... There's thoughts about learning the language come up and you know, going through the lessons and you can become obsessed by it. Well, that's actually something. We don't have to just dismiss the obsession. We can learn from that. So what is this obsession with this language that I'm learning? What is this obsession? What is the feeling? What is the feeling that I'm feeding on? What is it that I'm convinced by? What is it that I believe in? We can really simplify a lot of our practice just to see what is it that we're believing in and then look at it, look at it, look at it until we realize I don't have to believe that anymore. And that's very different from disbelieving, from grasping disbelief. It's just choosing to let go of the belief. And when we get a feeling for this, then all sorts of limitations and obstructions in our life uh, become much more workable. Just don't believe that. Just don't believe it. It's fine, yes. That looks really attractive. Don't believe it. And so you can still let it feel the way it feels. You can still let it feel really, really ugly and irritating and offensive. But no, I don't believe what, what that's saying to me. I should really be afraid of this. I should be terrified by this. No, I just don't believe that. And this also is a way towards radiance. And I would say this is, the, this is what's being pointed to in the Buddhist path of practice. The great beings who have practiced for a long time, who are great and radiant, they're not radiant because they're attaching to belief. If anything, they're actually radiant because of their disbelief. Because they don't believe in the, the way samsara appears to be. Some of you will be familiar, I'm sure, with that, that talk Ajahn Chah gave um, and is written in one of his books. It's called, I think, uh, Not Sure, The Standard of the Noble Ones or The Measure of the Noble Ones, something like that. And in there he's talking about if the thought occurs to you that, oh, I'm a Sotapanna, I'm a stream enterer, you just say, oh, I'm not sure. But I'm a a Sotapanna. So you go and see a Sotapanna. And you ask a sotapanna, what's it like being a sotapanna? He says, not sure. Yeah. And you go and see a, a sakadagami or, or an anagami. What's it like being a sakadagami? What's it like being an anagami? You know, one who's really kind of disarmed greed and aversion. What's it like? What's it like having dealt completely with greed and aversion, done away with them completely? What's it like? And they'll all say, not sure. Not sure. Or an arahant, one who's completely done away with everything, all attachment, just completely not sure. That was Ajahn Shah's interpretation. Yeah. Yeah. The way of being fully, radiantly not sure is very different from the radiance that comes from grasping and being sure. I think it's really helpful to, to appreciate this because when you look at the world, you know, sometimes we you might feel in yourself, oh, I'm not very sure about things and I'm not confident and... You, know, you listen to other people of other teachings, other disciplines, other walks of life, and you start to doubt about your practice. 
be careful with that. You know, be careful when the feeling of, oh, I'm not sure comes up. We don't, the feeling of, I'm not sure comes up, I say, oh, actually, I don't believe that. The feeling of not sure comes up, and if you, if you believe in it, say, oh, I'm pathetic, I'm hopeless, well, you just made yourself pathetic and hopeless. You're not pathetic and hopeless. Yeah. The feeling of, oh, I'm not sure, is apparent reality. And that's fine to feel not sure. But we don't have to believe in the feeling that comes with that feeling of not sure. The tone of that, the appearance of that. Yeah. And so what we discover, what we start to discover is that there's an increased capacity to live with being not sure. If we want to look at our progress in practice, yeah. don't look at how much sure you're becoming, but actually look at your capacity for accommodating uncertainty. If you want a barometer for practice, your progress in practice, look at your capacity for holding not sure. And that's very, very different from what most spiritual disciplines are going to be teaching us. And if we exercise it, apply it, try it out, not just because we believe in it as a good idea, but really try it out in in our... in our formal practice, in our daily life practice. We start to experiment with the the result of restraining the mind. And it's so subtle because the habit of, 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 of engaging experience willfully is such that even when we talk about restraint, the tendency is to do it willfully. But that's not... You know, what being composed and virtuous is about. That's not what being considerate and, and pure is about. Yeah. Pure and considerate is about a sensitive investigation. Yeah. Composed and virtuous is about a sensitive investigation of the conditions. And so the tendencies that keep tripping us up, we don't just try a new technique on them. We just really consider, really consider like ill will, like if you're in an argument with somebody and the feeling with the argument is the feeling when you that competitiveness comes up maybe this is just a bloke thing so women will have to translate it in, into their own experience but, but for blokes you, you get into this argy-bargy and the feeling is I've got to win if I don't win this then somehow I don't know what's going to happen the world's going to come to an end. I'm going to die. That's what our chemicals are telling us. I mean, if it wasn't that extreme, why would we behave the way we do? It sounds ridiculous to say, doesn't it? If I don't win this argument, I'm going to get killed. That's ridiculous, you know, losing an argument. So what? But why do, why do people argue so much? Because that is, that's the feeling, that's the impression, that's the belief that we're being fooled by. I believe that something terrible is going to happen if I lose this argument. That's what our chemicals are telling us. That's what men's chemicals tell us. You know, the hormones, they get activated. And you, you've got to fight, you've got to win. If you don't, it's a disaster. There'll be serious consequences. But that's the outside. That's the way it appears. And, and so if we believe in that, well, that's how we behave. Yeah. I know in my own case, over the years, I've, I've learned to... You know, I've got a little better handle on these things. I... When I was growing up, my older brother was obviously, he was bigger than me, two years older, and 
and much bigger and stronger and um, he, you know, he wasn't always nice to me. In fact, he was a brute sometimes. <laughs> and, and, but the, I had, a, I had a, a sharper tongue than he had. And so I would I exercise my speech on him in not a very friendly, pleasant way. And so I developed a habit of speaking back uh, when, 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 when people challenge me. But that's not, a, that's not pure and composed and considered and virtuous. That's, that's actually just kilesa. That's just pure defilement. That's compulsive behavior. And so with practice, one starts to learn that that's not going to get us what we're looking for. You know, believing in the conditions of the world is being a slave to the world. We don't have to believe in ill will. We don't have to win an argument. We can lose an argument. We can lose, and that's, that's a good barometer as well. When you can, you can just take, you're in a situation, you know you're getting caught up in an argument, you say, oh, okay, maybe. You don't just, again, you don't just take it as a technique, well, I'm going to win by refusing to play this game with you. That's not pretty subtle. But actually, you rem- we remember ourselves in the moment. We remember ourselves, which, of course, is what sati is, this, this self-remembering. We remember ourselves and we come back and say, I don't believe that. I don't have to win this argument. I don't have to buy that. So choosing to not believe uh, is very different from grasping at belief and and getting energized and and getting off on that. And also in this particular verse, it talks about uh, steadily, I think this is also very important, that word stood out for me, steadily increasing in radiance. Some of the translations of this verse just talk about grow in radiance, but other translations talk about steadily increasing in radiance. And I I think that's very helpful because in the world we live in, in the electronic age, the age of the computer chip, the new uh, latest Apple Nano, is one and a half inches wide, a phenomenal, powerful little thing that is so attractive to people who like gadgets. It just can do everything. It's an amazing little, neat little thing. See, at least some people know about it. It's so instant. It's got everything. It's an extraordinary little bit of electronic wizardry. But all of this is just a symptom of what's going on all around. It's just speed. So everybody's frantic with the electronic age. The whole body-mind is not operating like that. The one part of us operates like that. The nervous system can relate to it. But the flesh doesn't work like that. The bones don't work like that. Our energy system doesn't work like that. The electronic age appeals to one portion of our being, but the whole being doesn't operate like that. And because we can get intoxicated by this electronic wizardry and pulled into it out of desire, well, then we forget so much of the rest of us. And the rest of us can take a very long time. And so I think we need to remind ourselves that it's steady development. Over and over again, the Buddha gave these images, you know, like the one of the, the imprint on the hand of the tool of a craftsman, a carpenter using a chisel over and over again. Eventually, you see the handprint of the... Uh, the imprint on the handle of the chisel that he's using, or the drops of water going into a water barrel, drip, 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 gradually, gradually, a moment at a time. You know, okay, they weren't in the electronic age in the time of the Buddha, but there was still greed operating. 
Well, now our greed is potentized by, by the computer chip, and uh, we suffer as a result. So I think as we, <clears throat> as we put effort, as we're energetically committed to the way, we put energy in our, into our commitment of the way, we're very careful that we don't get demanding. Say, I'd like a little bit of that radiance. I'm going to go on another retreat. And you, you go on a retreat and trying to get radiant, you might come out you know, feeling you know, a bit dull and disappointed. And so, so steadily increases in radiance, I think that's a wonderful image. But we do need to be very careful, very patient and very mindful. So thank you very much this evening for your attention. Andamayang namavadakatasa dukarang dadamasim Sadu Sadu